evening. This is Rob McClure and Nate Weggehout bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Wisconsin is again ending the fiscal year with a positive balance in its bank book. The state's general fund has grown to a record high, ending the fiscal year at $4.6 billion. That's according to an annual financial report released today by the Department of Administration using generally accepted accounting practices. Today's ending balance is 300%, a, a 300% increase from the last fiscal year. And we're on an upward trend. 2020 was the first year in several decades that Wisconsin had started reporting a positive balance in the general fund. Also, according to the report, the state's transportation fund increased by more than 25%, and some of the state's long-term debt has been retired. That's according to Urban Milwaukee. Governor Evers says he supports the federal initiative to construct a passenger rail line between Madison and Milwaukee and expanding connections to St. Paul and Chicago. But he's not yet ready to make a commitment for the use of state funds for the project. The governor tells the Associated Press that he's waiting to see what federal funds would be available first. That's as top Republican legislative leaders signal their opposition to any use of federal or state funds for rail. Wisconsin almost got passenger rail a decade ago, but former Governor Walker nixed the $810 million in federal funds to build rail lines from Chicago to Milwaukee and to Madison. Evers says that decision continues to haunt the state. Well, even a blizzard can't stop some protesters here in Wisconsin. Tomorrow, demonstrators plan to gather outside the Fiserv Forum in Milwaukee, protesting a recent utility rate hike of 11% announced by We Energies and approved by the state's Public Service Commission. They'll gather at the Fiserv Christmas Tree, which they say is sponsored by We Energies. Organizers with Northside Rising and Citizen Action Wisconsin say they're also demonstrating against the company's foot-dragging on climate change. Madison's zoning officials are proposing a change in a long-standing regulation that could make housing more affordable and available. The proposal would repeal a decades-old zoning law in some parts of the city, which caps the number of unrelated renters in that same space at only two renters. The change would bump that number up to five unrelated renters living in the same house. The areas that would be affected are primarily just outside the university area, such as on South Regent Street. Zoning officials contend that the ordinance adversely affects lower-income people from co-housing and much of the city. Opponents of the change say that it will result in midnight beer parties in their neighborhood. The proposal heads to the Plan Commission next month. Madison School Board member Christina Gomez-Schmidt will not run for re-election to a second term. Gomez-Schmidt won her first term in a three-way race in 2020. The end of her initial campaign took place in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, and as a result, she took her only oath of office in her driveway. So far, two candidates have filed to run for the school board seat. Baudry Lankella, a, a pre who previously ran and lost in a bid for city council in 2019, while Blair Mosner-Feltham is a former teacher in the district. 
Madison school board members are elected in staggered three-year terms. This spring, two school board seats are up for election. Seat 7 incumbent Nikki Vandermeulen announced in November that she's running for re-election, and so far no candidate has filed to run against her. The American Red Cross has nixed their largest single-day blood drive due to the impending blizzard. The 37th annual holiday blood drive at the Alliant Energy Center was set to take place this Friday, but officials have canceled the event due to the extreme blizzard conditions expected in the next few days. This blood drive was under peril earlier this month as unionized Red Cross workers threatened to strike if their unions couldn't reach a contract agreement. Wisconsin Public Radio reports the union's threat to strike during the holiday blood drive was a powerful motivator to reach an agreement. Today's cancellation comes as experts predict a dip in supply of blood during the holidays, even though the demand for blood will remain stable. We reported yesterday that one regional blood bank is projecting a 20% decrease in blood donations over the next two weeks. And expect other kinds of cancellations as well as the blizzard approaches. Plenty of students across southern Wisconsin will get another snow day. Dozens of school districts, including Madison Public Schools, have canceled classes tomorrow. Meanwhile, the city of Madison wants you to know that trash and recycling collection will be suspended this Friday because of the storm. If your trash is usually picked up on Fridays, put it out on the curb next Monday instead. Meanwhile, other parts of the city are shutting down tomorrow. City offices will close at 2 p.m. and stay closed all day on Friday. City staff will be working remotely, however, so you can still call or email them. Madison City offices will also be closed next Monday. That's when the Christmas holiday is observed. Meanwhile, the city of Sun Prairie has declared a snow emergency, which starts tomorrow at noon and will end at noon on Friday. The Sun Prairie snow emergency suspends any parking on city streets. And now on to more of that blizzard and the rest of today's top stories. The holidays are almost here, and with it come some of the busiest travel days of the year. But tomorrow's snowstorm and the ensuing blow is looking to put some difficulties into that. Our producer, Nate Weggehaupt, has more details on the upcoming winter storm. This would be a story if it was just a snowstorm, and it would be a story about the uh, busy travel week leading up to the holidays, and here we are telling two stories at once. That's Michael Rickers with the Dane County Regional Airport, warning that weather conditions will have a major impact on travel ahead of the holidays. The National Weather Service has issued a winter weather warning from now until 6 a.m. Saturday morning for Dane County. Additionally, the entire state of Wisconsin will be under either a winter weather watch or warning by tomorrow night. On top of three to six inches of snow expected by Saturday morning, wind gusts as high as 50 miles per hour are expected on Friday, along with bitter cold across Dane County. With wind chills expected as low as 35 degrees below zero, the National Weather Service says that this can cause frostbite on exposed skin in as little as 10 minutes. Weather expert Rob McClure will have more on the exact weather conditions later in the show. The State Department of Transportation says that if you can, stay home on Friday. Driving is expected to be difficult, with wind gusts expected to create occasional whiteout conditions. 
If you do have to travel on Friday, the Department of Transportation has a few tips. First, make sure you have a full tank of gas and windshield washer fluid. Make sure your phone is fully charged and, if possible, bring some way to charge your phone just to be safe. Finally, keep an emergency kit in your vehicle containing blankets, warm socks and gloves, a first aid kit, drinking water and non-perishable food like granola bars, and sand or kitty litter for traction. While you're on the road, make sure you're driving slower than usual and stay at least 300 feet behind any working snowplow. If you can't see their mirrors, they can't see you. Even if you're careful, slide-offs can still happen. Friday's conditions could become challenging even for tow trucks, so be prepared to wait longer than usual for help. That goes for emergency vehicles, like ambulances and fire trucks as well. The city and county snowplows will also be in full force over the next few days. County officials held a press conference earlier today saying that they will have 60 vehicles working to keep the roads safe once the snow starts to fall. County Highway Commissioner Jerry Mandley says that the danger isn't so much from the snow itself, but from the snow drifts that come after. So we ask to uh, be very cautious, give our folks the room they need to do their job. They'll be rapidly changing conditions. So if you're traveling in the city of Madison, Beltline, Nima, the interstate, uh, things are going to look pretty good. But if you get off that main path, those places will drift over fairly quickly. And uh, we can get through those areas, but they can drift by the time we come through and then have to make a second pass through those. Mandley says icy conditions are another factor complicating driving conditions. Main thoroughfares and bus routes in Madison should be regularly salted, but transportation officials say they may not hit the side streets until later in the day. When the temperature gets so low, salt may not be as effective. Additionally, Mandley says that the amount of traffic on a road can also affect salt's effectiveness. If there's more traffic out there, if the tires get over that and form conditions on the road, the, the materials won't be quite as effective. So we'll have to watch that and then, uh, how we're responding and with the amount of traffic that's there as well. The Dane County Regional Airport is also expecting delays this weekend. Michael Ricker says that they've been preparing for this storm since Monday. Started with scheduling some of our staff actually pretty light. And the reason we do that is so that people are well rested and the timing works out for when the snow event hits, we flex into a 24-hour cycle. And certainly that's not a continuous 24-hour shift. It's split up into many shifts, but our staff then takes shifts throughout the 24-hour cycle. So we started with the staffing plan and then our crews are also, they've spent the week preparing their equipment for the snow removal, mainly for the airfield. So getting that tuned up really from the last snow event, which was earlier in the week, and getting ready for this next one coming up. Ricker says that if it is possible for you to change your plans, that would probably be best. He says that what happens at the Dane County Airport partly depends on what's happening at the Minneapolis Airport, because many flights from Dane County either come from or go to Minneapolis. Conditions in Minneapolis are looking worse than in Madison, and they are currently under a blizzard warning. But with the holidays just around the corner, Rickers says that some travel is just unavoidable. So if you have to fly on Thursday or Friday, he says that planning ahead is important. Reach out to the airlines that you're traveling with. Many of the airlines are offering a really robust rebooking option. So look into that if you can slide your, your trip left or right, you know, earlier or later. That would be a tremendous help to yourself as well as to the, the airline staff and the network. But if, if your plans aren't flexible, if you absolutely have to travel, 
please arrive early. Give yourself plenty of time to get to the airport safely. That's first and foremost. And then once you're here, be proactive about getting through security and getting up to your gate in plenty of time so you're not rushed. Rickers also reminds everyone to please be patient with airport staff as their number one goal is to get everyone where they need to be safely. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wiggy Health. Case New Holland Industrial Union workers in Racine tasked with assembling agricultural equipment have been on strike since May with no end in sight. In a show of support last Saturday, union workers from across the state held a rally and a fundraising drive. Caravans from Milwaukee, Kenosha, and Madison descended upon Racine, bringing gifts, food, sign, and more to motivate the strikers. Our reporter Christopher Cartwright hit the road with them. Uh, my name is Michelle Bendix, and I'm a UAW worker here at the CNH plant in Racine, Wisconsin. And can you explain or give the summary of the situation that's going on with the strike? So our contract expired in May. Um, a new contract that wasn't wasn't good enough or wasn't given to us then, so we walked out on the on, on that day, and we've been out since then. Um, negotiations haven't been going great, um, so it is now December, and we are still out here, um, and we'll continue to be out here until we get a contract that's fair enough for everybody, and then we can return to work. And what are the main like stipulations that you want in a fair contract? So overall, between everybody, we did take a survey, so we kind of like figured out what everybody's top tiers were. Um, wages were one. Um, I know that they have taken out the cost of living. I've only been here less than a year, so this is all new to me. Um, so um, just getting what's fair for everybody. Um, insurance was another thing. Um, there were some other little things like the pension and 401k. Um, but the big thing is wages. We want living wages for everybody that's going to give us what we need and, and we can survive. CNH recently reported a third quarter net income of $559 million with consolidated revenues over $5 billion. Meanwhile, the current starting pay for a CNH worker in Racine is $20.93. But this conversation with strikers, held in a blistering 23 degrees on December 17th, was simply the culmination of a day's journey through southeastern Wisconsin, joining organizer Tim Corden as he piloted a unity bus across the byways. The caravan picked up supporters in Janesville, Whitewater, and Waterford. It first convened at the Madison Labor Temple, where I spoke with Michael Jones, the president of the teachers' unit of Madison Teachers Incorporated, who was scheduled to speak at the rally. What, like, what's the crux of what you'll be speaking about? I think sometimes it's a little weird. Like, why would a Madison teacher be interested in, like, a, in, uh, you know, uh, the the plight of of uh, workers in Racine who assemble uh, parts? But you know, I my students my my kids my community you know both come from racine and go to racine for for jobs um for a better opportunity for for life reasons we are all connected especially in this state and to um and to ignore that is to allow uh people to divide and conquer us when they divide us and they keep us away from each other um they they understand they do so out of fear that like when we do come together we can actually move mountains and the work of of the UAW down in Racine 
directly impacts the work of Racine schools and Racine teachers. And as someone who's in solidarity with uh, the Racine Educators Association, it impacts all of us. So uh, we need to make sure that uh, we don't let them, you know, split us up. Then the building unity caravan hit the highway. Along the way, we passed abandoned storefronts and crumbling strip malls, grabbing a few supporters at each stop. We are now at our first stop on the caravan in Janesville in front of an abandoned Toys R Us in the parking lot. And the organizers are currently gathering everyone um, to continue with the caravan. Um, so could you state your name and what brings you uh, to this? My name is Susan Johnson, and I am uh, living in Janesville right now, and I have for 17 years, but I'm originally from Kenosha, Wisconsin, which if anybody knows about that, they know that one of the biggest industries in Kenosha was the, was a, the car industry, and American Motors was there, and um, UAW Local 72 was there, and my dad worked at AMC all of his life, and he uh, was a proud member of UAW Local 72. And I'm here for him. Um, it, it's just so important for us all to fight together. And um, because I have to say, I mean, if, if you don't stand up, you're... <sighs> we drove onwards. I lost the van in Whitewater, then regained ground as we pulled into Waterford. A few honks greeted us at each stop, but the full force of the rally appeared when we pulled up to the United Auto Workers 180, or UAW 180, hall at 2 p.m. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union makes us strong. When the union's inspiration through the workers... Mayor blocks from the CNH factory, supporters sang and spoke before heading over to show their support. I talked with Brian Pfeiffer, co-host of the We Rise Fighting Labor podcast and one of the event organizers. Well, we've been here, we've been working to organize this today for weeks, and we, uh, my co-host Rick Uritia has been on the ground here since uh, Tuesday, uh, here in Racine, and it, we have been in the Union Hall all day, every day, and it's been very heartwarming, very touching, and very uh, amazing to see, I mean, like, literally, every five minutes, ten minutes, every hour, people are bringing by food. Uh, today we saw somebody who literally made, handmade, like, scarves for the strikers. Food is coming in, all kinds of tremendous support, every day, all day, and that's really, really what heart the strikers and their loved ones. Uh, these strikers are 700 here and 400 in Burlington, Iowa. They have children, they have family, uh, they need food to come in, and that's really helped them a lot. Uh, we have uh, things going on at the Union Hall all the time, the rally today, and uh, this is keeping uh, folks moving and keeping their uh, fight back spirit alive. Do you feel like this is, because there's been a lot of, like in the news lately, a lot of strikes going on across the country, do you think this is indicative of a larger movement that's happening? Yes, I think especially after the pandemic, we as workers are absolutely fed up. We know that we built this country, our loved ones passed on or got very sick during the COVID pandemic. We were told that we're essential, right? And now we're told by these uh, Wall Street barons, these filthy vultures and greedy uh, so-called human beings that now they're going to toss us out on a scrap heap after we just kept 
literally hundreds of millions of people alive moving product doing what we do as workers in this society and so many workers today are like we're fed up we're, we're gonna fight we're done <laughs> you know from Starbucks workers to Amazon workers to the workers here at CNHI we're not taking it anymore we're gonna fight back uh, there's people on the move across the country we saw amazing day today right there's educators out here Starbucks workers are here healthcare workers are here all united saying we're not taking this anymore we're not taking any greedy bosses we're gonna fight for what's ours we're gonna fight for our loved ones and we're gonna keep it moving we're gonna build a better society where everybody has the right to a job everybody has the right to health care and everybody has the right to a union and we have communities where we actually care about each other and we don't have bosses that try to kill us every day and take everything that we have worked so hard to, to win over the years so we're here in solidarity and we're gonna continue and we're gonna move forward with this I'm in Racine right now heading out with the caravan I would say there's around 200 to 300 cars all headed towards the plant to show solidarity. And now I'm passing other cars with signs on the top that say various things like corporate greed, workers on strike. So there has just been a rally and now we're driving around heading out over to the plant itself to show support for the workers out there who are striking. The frigid wind only emphasized the passion behind this movement. As temperatures dipped towards the teens and the sun set, strikers and supporters alike stood firmly in front of the chain-link fence surrounding the factory. Finally, I hopped in my car and began the long trek home. But one image remained. Outside Whitewater, the caravan had passed a crumbling farm silo standing sentry by a fallow field. Someone had spray-painted John 15.5 in red letters across the side. To quote, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. As if echoing the rally itself. In the age of globalization, when they tell you not to stand shoulder to shoulder with the immigrants, when they tell you not to create international solidarity, we have to break beyond that. That's what's gonna win this. We have, we have to make it seem, we have to make it seem like the Mexican workers, the Italian workers, the French workers, the Chinese workers, those are our next door neighbors now. We have no choice, that's the reality. All our work is interconnected. We are in the same struggle because we are the international working class and we are going to win this. Solidarity, folks. Reporting from Racine for WORT News, I'm Christopher Cartwright. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. Thanks for staying with us this evening. As the weather gets colder, feature contributor Sean Bull looks at staying warm as an activity in its own right. On this edition of Parks and Landmarks, we explore Madison's Hoyt Park, and Sean builds a fire for us. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. If you're listening to this live, today is the first day of the 2022-2023 winter season. The sun was above the horizon for its shortest duration all year, and 
boy does it feel like it. Lawns are packed down with snow, ice rinks are starting to open, and I'm just starting to hit the point where it's too cold to get ice cream on a whim. In this weather, I have to build my temperature up with a good snowshoeing sesh before heading to my nearest chocolate shop. Rob will tell you in a few minutes exactly what kind of winter we're heading into, so I won't belabor the point. You get it. There are a few winter experiences that are essential to Wisconsin, things that everyone should try to do in their time here. Some of these are obvious, like building a snow sculpture or skating a frozen pond, but some are more easily overlooked. For instance, I think just about everyone can and should spend an hour or more soaking up the warmth of a bonfire on a below-freezing day. Modern heat, I think, is easy to take for granted. Sure, we all appreciate the feeling of radiant warmth slowly thawing us as we enter a building from some time outside, but we give little thought to it after that moment. A fire on a cold day is different. Without walls to define a heated space, the near-infinite chill constantly presses in, and even strong flames can only barely keep the elements at bay. In an advanced society, there are often calls to reject modernity, to seek experiences which call back to the simpler lives of our ancestors. I don't personally believe there's much to be gained from eating uncooked cow livers and sleeping on a dirt floor, but a fire feels primal in a way that's relaxing rather than challenging. Gazing into the flames, it's easy to imagine your ancestors gathered together hundreds or even thousands of years in the past, doing much the same thing as you. We may never invent time travel, but with combustible materials and a spark, just about anyone can fashion the next best thing. Of course, depending on where you live, you might not know of a good place to make your fire. If you live in Madison, or any city really, your options can be quite limited. After some trial and error, I've learned that our local fire departments frown on simply setting a pile of things alight on your lawn. They ask you to burn in a fire pit or similar enclosed vessel. As a quick tangent, I've never understood why a dumpster fire is so commonly used to mean a disaster. Sure, an unplanned dumpster fire is bad, but of the things in a city that could burn, a dumpster seems pretty manageable, right? It's an enclosed metal container, very resistant to fire damage, and some even have wheels. They are, by design, easy to relocate. Anyway, if you don't have a place to put a fire pit, don't start trash fires, I guess. I'm leading up to a better idea here. Several local parks have fireplaces built into their main shelters, but unfortunately those close to public use over the winter. So to start a fire this time of year, you need a park with fire pits separate from a shelter. Within the city of Madison, Hoyt Park is the best place to go for this need. Hoyt Park is a forested 30-acre plot of land set in the hills of Madison's near west side. If you take Regent Street West past West High School, it passes a graveyard, some houses, then turns into the driveway of Hoyt Park. This was originally one of Madison's pleasure drives, a precursor to the park system that let residents in the late 19th century and early 20th century escape the city for an afternoon at a time. This particular drive led out of what was, at the time, the west edge of the city. People could look further west from the top of the hill, and admire the farms and countryside below. This lookout still exists today, though some might argue its view of Hilldale Mall is less picturesque than it once was. In the early 20th century, the private Madison Park and Pleasure Drive Association transitioned to being the city's parks division, 
With broader use and a bigger budget came more infrastructure. And in the 1930s, the Civilian Conservation Corps built a shelter, tables, and a dozen freestanding stone fireplaces scattered around Hoyt Park. When people think of the CCC's work, they think first of their work on the national parks, or things like the bluff trails at Devil's Lake. But they weren't limited to projects that large in scope. The CCC was everywhere, and with a little maintenance from the modern friends of Hoyt Park, their creations still stand today. The stone and wood shelter is a handsome building, and the best preserved of the nearly century-old structures. But that's clearly not what I'm focusing on today. The fireplaces are made of rough-hewn sandstone, each a little different from the next. Most sit in little clearings under Hoyt's tall canopy of trees. Some have a modern park picnic table, but others are accompanied by stone tables that were cut at the same time. These are huge slabs, which look as much like a sacrificial altar as a place to put your s'more supplies. The stone in the park was mostly sourced on site. Before Hoyt was ever a recreation space, it was the site of one of Madison's first quarries. You can still see the scars of this industrial past. The place where the rocks were originally now shows as a 20-foot cliff, which runs along most of the park's northern edge. A fireplace isn't universally better than a fire pit, but these do have their advantages. Smokeless fire pits have gained a lot of popularity over the past few years, and I can attest they live up to their marketing department's hype. When constructed in the right way, a fire pit can burn so efficiently that it gives off nearly no smoke to those gathered around it. But a simple chimney whisks away smoke just as well, if not better than any space-age $400 steel bowl. The shape of a fireplace also protects its fire from light rain, wind, or snow. Sure, they're not portable, but fireplaces are ideal for permanent installations like these. Most times of the year, you can find quite a bit of fire material at Hoyt. It has as many downed limbs as any wooded park, and plenty of dry cast-off pine needles and oak leaves to get you started. However, over a typical Wisconsin winter, these things get wet and buried by snow, so it's best to bring your own things to burn if possible. Unless you live within a few miles of the park, you should buy your wood, specifically wood that is treated to remove harmful pests. The wood sold at your nearest grocery store or gas station is perfect for this. It's usually kept out of the rain and certified safe to travel with. While you're shopping, there is no shame in picking up a bottle of barbecue lighter fluid. I know what I said earlier about connecting with our ancestors, but that's just the end result we're going for. It doesn't matter how you get there. Most of the paper products in your recycling bin make a nice dry fuel, but if you don't have enough on hand, you can always buy a newspaper as you gather everything else. Building the fire is the easy part. Simply stack your wood with room to breathe, then crumple paper up and use it to fill the space between. Ideally, you need some sticks as well, something to bridge the gap between paper and logs. However, these can be hard to source, so your best bet might still be to forage for downed branches around the park. When your pile is complete, you can spray it with lighter fluid, then crumple up one more piece of paper light it, and add it to the pile. Over the past couple years, I've gotten fond of a rechargeable electric lighter. It's basically a tiny taser, and its little arc of lightning is capable of starting everything from campfires to candles. Unfortunately, it can only maintain the voltage to do this if its battery is above a certain temperature, so I was disappointed to find it inoperable on this occasion. 
Regular matches or butane lighters will work fine here. A couple notes on lighter fluid. Though I have found it's one of the best things to supplement a struggling winter bonfire, I would be irresponsible if I didn't tell you not to add lighter fluid to a fire that's already going. There's always a chance that as you squirt it onto the fire, the flame could travel up the stream into the bottle, which could then explode in your hand. That said, it's also important to know that lighter fluid won't easily light off anything but an open flame. If your fire has some embers at the bottom and your lighter fluid-soaked logs won't seem to catch, you may need to light another piece of paper just to have a flame for the fluid to work with. A winter bonfire is an experience unlike any other, and Hoyt Park is the perfect place to try one for yourself. The park is open from 4am to 10pm year-round, and I'll link more information about it online at wortfm.org. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wordfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And now, the man for the moment. It's time for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with W-O-R-T weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, it's the first time I've ever gotten a drum roll along with it. <coughs> Pardon me. Well, there's nothing like a winter storm to welcome in, well, winter, uh, which just a couple of hours ago did begin. The sun reached the Tropic of Capricorn at 348 this afternoon. <coughs> Pardon me. Well, it figures that when I put the Monday morning forecast together this week, the computer modeling had just completed a series of runs in which the storm that is now approaching and uh, had undergone a change in its evolution and track, which involved earlier surface development down to our south and west, and consequently a path nearby to our southeast that promised a fairly robust snow from an Oklahoma hook-type storm, the sort that often bury us during the winter. But I began to have my doubts about that uh, yeah, almost as soon as I left the station, given how the upstream portion of the polar jet had started to evolve in the ensuing hours, pushing well off the coast of British Columbia and directing its energy more southeastward rather than south. And then, sure enough, all the subsequent models, uh, model runs dispensed with the Oklahoma hook idea entirely and returned to a much more uh, delayed, further uh, east surface circulation that pretty much uh, mimicked what they had been predicting before that. And that's the kind of storm we're going to end up with. So if you're a snow lover and had hoped for the foot or more of snow that looked possible back on Monday, uh, my apologies. I'm afraid we'll have to settle for the uh, three or four or possibly five inches we'll be getting over this coming nighttime period. Uh, Even so, as we've been detailing through this broadcast so far, conditions are hardly going to be conducive for travel over the coming days. And that'll mostly be down to the howling winds, which are going to set up midday tomorrow and continue essentially unabated until a later Saturday, really into Sunday, the way it's looking. Uh, So uh, basically, we've got all of the inconvenience of a snowstorm ahead of us, just without very much snow, as it turns out. 
Uh, have a look at the water vapor image of the U.S. that has the pressure fields laid over top of it, which is up on the WORT weather webpage this evening. And you'll see the polar branch of the jet, uh, which is giving the energy to the storm, diving southeastward from about eastern Washington currently down towards Colorado. And you'll also see a fledgling surface low pressure developing out ahead of it over the Panhandle region. So all of that actually looks promising, but this storm isn't going to be able to panhandle hook at us. The onrush of Arctic air from the northwestern plains where it is now all the way southeastward across the Mississippi Valley by midday tomorrow uh, is simply going to outpace that Lowe's ability to deepen in any significant way between there and here. And it's going to instead end up essentially leapfrogging over that cold air far to the northeast, up around northern Indiana or lower Michigan, where it'll be positioned uh, both between the warm and cold air and out ahead of the upper air trough. Uh, that'll be a spot in which the upper winds above will be conducive to inducing lift and deepening its circulation. So from there it will get going, and once it gets going, that swirl of low pressure will be spinning intensely and for quite a while, given the enormous thermal and pressure contrast driving it. So west to northwest winds, which will increase noticeably mid-morning tomorrow with the cold frontal passage, uh, will continue unabated, uh, indeed strengthening through Friday, uh, right on through much of the coming weekend, as I was mentioning. As a result, uh, ground blizzard conditions and whiteouts are going to be an ongoing hazard from tomorrow on through Saturday, especially in rural areas, and especially areas northwest of Madison, where a couple additional inches may come down tonight. Uh, wind chills will also be a major concern going forward, dropping towards 30 below zero or lower to, uh, both tomorrow and Friday nights, but then not improving much during the day either, up to perhaps 20 below zero. Uh, but if you don't like the cold, wait a few days. By Tuesday or Wednesday of next week, we'll be uh, back towards freezing, perhaps rewarming above that. But back to tonight, uh, skies will continue to thicken, and uh, in addition to the light freezing drizzle we have at the moment, light snow should move northeastward out of Iowa as we get on towards about 8 or 9 p.m. Temperatures will continue to uh, increase as we go through the evening and overnight hours, up into the low 20s, I think, on southerly winds, uh, which will come up to 48 miles per hour. Uh, snow will continue off and on then uh, through tomorrow morning. It will be heaviest after midnight tonight and in the wee hours, and especially to the northwest of Madison where it's going to get an earlier start. Morning snow will uh, lighten up as we get into the midday and afternoon hours, but uh, continue off and on through the afternoon. The cold frontal passage looks to occur uh, around 8 to eight to 10 in the morning, the way it's looking in Madison, a little earlier uh, northwest of Madison and south, uh, later to the southeast. Uh, after which uh, winds will veer west-northwesterly and increase steadily through the rest of the day, up to uh, 18 to 25 miles per hour in the evening and continuing to strengthen overnight. Temperatures will free-fall tomorrow during the day, so even though we'll be in the low or possibly even the mid-20s right in the early part of the morning, we'll be down to the single digits by noon and probably past zero by the time the sun goes down or shortly after, and in the mid-single digits below zero overnight. Uh, winds of 25 to 30 miles per hour will gust well above 40 miles per hour and drive wind chills south of 30 below tomorrow.
tomorrow night. Skies may break again in the overnight period with episodic passing snow showers possible too, and those sky conditions will hold through Friday as northwesterly winds continue to howl at 25 to 35 miles per hour, again with gusts past 40 miles per hour, perhaps up towards 50 as we heard. Air temperatures uh, may get stuck below zero for the day Friday, and wind chills will stay submerged 20 to 30 degrees colder than that. Temperatures will hold in the low single digits below zero overnight into Saturday, with the west-northwesterly winds continuing at 20 to 30 miles per hour and still gusty. Uh, Saturday will stay very windy and cold with the temperatures in the single digits above zero that day. Northwesterly winds will still be up at 18 to 25 miles per hour and still gusty. We'll climb back above 10 degrees, I think, finally on Sunday, and winds finally will come down below 15 miles per hour at that point. And again, as I mentioned, warming as we get into the mid part of next week. Currently at the station down here on Bedford Street, we're at 10 degrees. The dew point temperature is 7. The winds are out of the east at 8 miles per hour. Um, we're overcast at about 900 feet currently, and the uh, uh, depth of saturation is uh, deep enough now for light freezing drizzle. The barometer is falling at 30.18 inches of mercury. And we now go to December 1960 for news of urban renewal, urban sprawl, and a return to Monkey Island. Here's Stu Levitan with this week's time-traveling Madison in the 60s. All these they melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, December 1960. As the month opens, the state Supreme Court closes the last legal challenges to the complex corporate structure of the Hilldale Shopping Center, a unique public-private partnership which UW Regent and former Governor Oscar Rennebaum devised to maximize university revenue from the farmland it owns just west of Midvale Boulevard. The High Court rules 6-1 to one that the university was not illegally engaging in private business when it gave $200,000 to a dummy non-profit corporation called Keylab Incorporated, which used the money to buy 33 acres in the neighborhood named after the university's Hill Farms. The plan, which the Regents approved in May 1958, is for Keylab to lease the land to Hilldale Incorporated, which is wholly owned by the University of Wisconsin Foundation. The Hilldale Corporation will then construct buildings to rent to retail businesses, including F.W. Woolworths, Yost Kessenich's, the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, and the drugstore company founded by former pharmacist Rennebaum. The lease payments which Hilldale makes to Keylab will be turned over to the university, as will all stock dividends which Hilldale generates. A shopping center competitor, the Glendale Corporation, claimed in vain the agreement constituted an unconstitutional public debt and set the price for the land far too low. The residential aspect of the region's 600-acre hill farms development, begun in 1957, is already wildly successful. All but 10 of the 800 lots have been sold and 510 homes have been constructed. At month's end, more challenges to downtown retail. W.T. Grant, 21 South Pinckney Street, announces it will close on January 14th after 30 years on the Capitol Square and relocate to an as-yet-unnamed shopping center. 
Seven blocks down West Washington Avenue, the Madison Redevelopment Authority ends all hope for public housing in the city's first urban renewal area, the Brittingham Project just east of Brittingham Park. All year long, the Madison Housing Authority has been trying to get the MRA to okay public housing for the residents who are about to lose their homes for the Triangle Urban Renewal Project just across the avenue. But on December 1st, the MRA formally rejects the MHA's bid, causing local leader Chester Smudzinski, the head of the Madison Neighborhood Centers, to warn of dire consequences if the city doesn't build public housing for the displaced residents. Not our problem, says the Federal Urban Renewal Administration. As the month ends, the URA approves the project's final plans, six years after the city initiated the project. Black sharecroppers in Tennessee get a little help after the Madison Common Council overrides City Clerk A.W. Barris and allows members of the UW Student Council on Civil Rights to raise funds on city sidewalks. The money will go to tenant farmers who have been denied credit to purchase food and clothing ever since they tried to register to vote in March. Barris originally ruled that only duly registered charities can solicit on the street, and that the student plan to send the money they raised to the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference to support the Tennessee group did not qualify. The council disagreed, and the students raised about $300. In other civil rights news, UW chemistry demonstrator Odell Taliaferro is re-elected president of the Madison chapter of the NAACP over Dane County social worker Marshall Colston, who is named a member of large of the executive committee. Former chapter president attorney Lloyd A. Barbie is elected third vice president. On the 7th, UW Dean of Students Leroy Luberg, a former recruitment officer for the Central Intelligence Agency, warns students who join leftist political groups such as the Socialist Club or the Fair Play for Cuba Committee that they may be jeopardizing their professional futures. There are many campuses, he says in a Daily Cardinal interview, that, quote, don't have the level of toleration which is generally accepted here. Luberg also says that he takes such organizational activities into account when writing letters of recommendation for government jobs that require security clearances. On the 9th, the regents approve a faculty proposal to tighten admission standards for out-of-state students by requiring a top 40% ranking rather than the top 50. The non-resident students come from families with more education and higher income than their in-state classmates. According to a new UW study, almost 40% of out-of-state men and 60% of non-resident women come from households with annual income $15,000 and above, four times the rate of in-state students. And while fully half the fathers of non-resident students have a college degree, only 35% of the fathers of resident women and 27% of the fathers of resident men share that educational attainment. The State Industrial Commission rules that disgraced former Madison Police Chief Bruce Weatherly is entitled to more than $3,500 in workers' compensation and medical fees for injuries sustained in January 1959 when he smashed his city squad car after drinking for several hours at the Hoffman House with his secretary. The Police and Fire Commission fired Weatherly four months after the incident. 
There could soon be high-rise lakefront living for high rollers just east of the Edgewater Hotel, as a group of well-connected financiers, executives, and industrialists released plans for a 350-unit apartment project for the elderly. The group Senior Citizens of Wisconsin Incorporated wants to tear down the historic Vilas and Hanks mansions at Wisconsin Avenue and East Gilman Street and build three eight-story apartment buildings. Construction will start as soon as financing is arranged. Far from downtown, Madison continues to pursue its manifest destiny to the west as a square mile of rolling farmland on either side of Old Sauk Road, between Gammon Road and the Beltline, is sold for a massive development featuring homes, schools, churches, a shopping center, and a privately owned pool. The Patrick J. Lucy Realty Company, which brokered the sale of three family farms to the West Air Corporation, will handle the residential component. And it's monkey see, monkey do, all the monkeys are now back at the zoo, four months after they escaped from Monkey Island at the Vilas Park facility. Most of the 36 rhesus monkeys were recaptured quickly, but several stayed footloose and fancy-free. But in early December, the last two were finally trapped and brought back. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s for your award-winning, simian-celebrating, listener-supported WRT News Team. I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to our local live new, live local news at 6 p.m. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporter was Christopher Cartwright. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Nate Weggy helped produce the newscast in addition to co-hosting. And double duties for Sholly Pittman also. She's the news director and engineered tonight's broadcast. I'm your host, Robert McClure. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. We'll talk to you again tomorrow night. Until then, good night. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison.